Father, we thank you for the reminder in these songs today that there is only one place where we can be reassured and comforted and absolutely certain and assured of a future and a hope that will last forever, will outlast the trials and the vicissitudes, the afflictions and the difficulties and the tribulations of this time unto eternal life. And that place to stand is our rock, our cornerstone, our foundation, the assurance of our soul's salvation, Jesus Christ alone. And he is the rock upon which all must fall or be ground into powder. We must realize that he was crucified for our transgressions, that he was raised for our justification, that he ascended unto glory, that he rules and reigns now at the right hand of the Father. We must turn from our sins and place faith and trust in his shed blood to atone them. It was his nail-pierced hands and feet and his thorn-scarred head that purchased for us justification for our sins that absorbed the wrath that we deserved and granted unto us by sovereign imputation righteousness whereby we are counted just and holy before a righteous and perfect God. And so we exalt the holy name of Jesus Christ. We remember what he's done for us this day. And as we've sung of these great things, now we turn to your word, Lord. We pray that you would cause the knee of our understanding to bow before its precepts. We pray that you would bring humility to the proud, that you would lift up the humble as your authoritative truth is proclaimed this day. Not only here, but everywhere where your word is preached in spirit and in truth, rightly divided and declared, we pray that the mountains of unbelief would be moved and that faith would be sparked sovereignly by the touch of your spirit's use of these means The lost will be brought into salvation. Your church would be perfected and corrected and directed unto that which you have called her to unequivocally and boldly and with precision proclaim the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for him and his mighty work on our behalf. We thank you for these moments you've granted us together. And we pray that you would be glorified and that we would be equipped and edified by the proclamation of your scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning it is a privilege to open up the scriptures together and to satisfy our souls with the bread of life, with the nutrition that can sustain us in any time. We're reminded of this in times of difficulty and trial all the more. Turn with me, if you would, in your scriptures to Nehemiah chapter 10. This morning we will continue along the theme of last week's message, with a second sermon from the book of Nehemiah. The title of last week's message was Sackcloth or Slavery. And the thesis was that in times of crisis, when God in His chastising judgment, with His afflicting providences, gives us a wake-up call. Any people, at any time, God is free to do this and often does, just as He did His people in the time of Nehemiah's day. And depending on how we respond to that wake-up call, that opportunity for repentance, the, uh, deter- or the rest of the course of that people's livelihood and what to expect is determined. And the title of last week's message reflects two options. It's either sackcloth or slavery. Sackcloth representing humility and repentance, turning from our sins unto God. Slavery, of course, being subject to further judgment, and further repercussions, further consequences 
for our sin. So it's a fearful warning that comes in times like ours. This morning, I'd like to build on that theme by a, ty- by a sermon entitled, Repentance in Writing. Repentance in Writing. Nehemiah 10, verses 28 through 33, gives us in part the writing of a repentance document. The aim of this morning's message is to proclaim applications of repentance modeled in the post-exile. In this era of Israel's history, in covenant history indeed, there are certainly applications of repentance that apply to us today. And so we turn again to the Holy Scriptures. With your Scripture, with your Bible open to Nehemiah 10, would you stand as you're able, out of reverence for the reading of God's Holy Word this day? Nehemiah 10, 28-33. Here is the Holy Word of God. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and His rules and His statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Nehemiah 10 presents an exemplary covenant document of national repentance. What we have just heard is a portion of a covenant document of national repentance. This has followed a public forum wherein the people had humbled themselves via fasting, sackcloth, dirt on their heads, dedicating major portions of the day to scripture proclamation and worship. To remind you, that was recorded in Chapter 9, verse 1. On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in the place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. After this, They codify their intentions with a sealed document. 9.38, last verse of chapter 9. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So this is the background and context of portions of the covenant document of which we read in our text, our primary text this morning. So this sealed document includes the names of princes, Levites, and priests that are fixed as signatories. Signatures on the bottom of this, a firm covenant in writing. 
This document discloses the vows of this people to order their corporate and individual affairs according to the original intent of God's law and God's law as it applied to them. These events were accompanying Israel's return from exile. And in this scenario, in this circumstance, we see modeled for us at least three essential aspects of repentance. These are in your notes in the paragraph at the top of the page. If you don't have that, you could write these down. They're very simple. Three aspects of repentance. Number one, admitting sin. Number two, seeking God's forgiveness. Number three, turning from sin. Just a helpful note, when I'm going over the gospel with my small children, the ones who have not confessed faith in Christ yet, and I teach them what repentance means, I'll often use that threefold reference point. What is repentance? Number one, admitting sin. Number two, seeking God's forgiveness. Number three, turning from that sin. We see the people of God doing exactly this in the context of our passage today. Now, rather than leave these ideas in the abstract, they actually put down on paper their concrete commitments in this regard. This is the sin that we have committed. This is how we are seeking God's forgiveness, and most specifically, this is how we are turning from our sin. They put this down in concrete, on paper, and sign their names. They lay out their pathway of turning unto the Lord to which they are expected, to which they expect to be held accountable even to their own hurt. Chapter 10, verse 29. More on this later. But notice the sobriety of this moment. They join with their brothers and their nobles and they enter into a curse and oath to walk in God's law. Now, do you think they are taking this seriously? That language indicates to us that this is extremely serious. They are, expect, they are expected, expecting to be held accountable even to their own hurt. In signing this document, they were entering into a curse and oath to walk in God's law. And it is evident from their testimony of this era of covenant history that authentic repentance is measured. Let me give you three more things. Authentic repentance can be measured by these three things. What we reject, the sin that we turn from. What we embrace, here, the Word of God, as exemplified by His law. And number three, who we worship. What we reject, what we embrace, who we worship. Litmus test for repenting. The occasion for this message today, now, fast-forwarding to our day, whatever it is, April 5th, 2020, the occasion for this message presents itself amidst the continued health and economic fallout of the coronavirus, this COVID-19 pestilence, almost like a plague which is sweeping not just our nation, but it's a worldwide event. This crisis prevents an opportunity for us as a people to realize the consequences of our great sins against the Lord and to repent accordingly. How will we call for and recognize fruits of repentance as this situation continues? That question leads us to our text today. Ezra and Nehemiah have something to teach us in this regard. Now let me parenthetically note by way of direct today application. Perhaps the real test of repentance will be when the crisis begins to subside and things return to something more normal, at least if not in the social systems, in the minds 
of the people of our country, indeed, this world. At that point, at that point, let me ask these questions. Will gay pride parades remain canceled or will they be rescheduled? When things begin to return to normal in our land, we have a forced quarantine for most of these things right now. When we return to a state of normalcy to some degree, at least in our minds, will these parades that celebrate in the streets of our land, things that are atrocities in God's eyes, things that are so reprehensible and debased and depraved according to his law, will those parades be rescheduled? You see, what we embrace and what we reject and who we worship, those are measures by which we will judge whether this land is repentant or not. Will Obergefell, you know, that famous court case that codified by law, that gave sanction to law of same-sex relationships, so-called marriage, will Obergefell come up for revival, for review, excuse me, judicially when all, this, when all the dust settles? Will abortion services close or remain open? You know, some states right now have declared to their minor credit that abortion is elective surgery and should be shut down. Apologist, you might know him, Saiten Bruggenkate, drove with a friend of his to an abortion clinic that remained open, I believe, in Houston this week. They parked their car in front of the driveway and called the police. Why? Because that abortion clinic was remaining open in defiance of the Governor uh, Abbott's orders at the time. The police came. And you can get a copy of the video online. And what you will hear is the police telling them that they are non-essential and they must go home. They say, sir, we are saving lives just like you are. We are essential. Who should we call when the law is broken? Well, naturally, the police, they say. We have done that, Sai says. We have called the police. The law is being broken in that building. Not only are babies being dismembered as a matter of course in that building right now, but it's in direct defiance of the orders of the governor of your state, orders which you are required to uphold, and they quickly changed the subject. They would not be held accountable to shut down that illegal activity of dismembering babies, but they told those gentlemen who are out there seeking to save the lives of the unborn that they must go home. They are non-essential. Will we see a change in these kinds of things when the dust settles? Will families... Another question, continue to educate their children independent of government indoctrination centers when the dust settles in order to instill them with a biblical worldview? Even the schools are closed in our land right now? We'll see. Will church assemblies reconvene more committed than ever? Or will it be a pruning time and many of us will drop off, actually losing what was just perhaps proved to be a formal association with the people of God? During this time, let me ask you about your religious affections. Do you desire, do you long for communion, which we forego this morning because we're not gathered and collected in one place in the house of God? It's on hold. It's suspended for the moment. Do you long for it? Will we conduct true and undefiled worship of the Almighty when we can again without this quarantine and social distancing measures that the exigencies of the hour seem to demand? Will idols of media and entertainment remain in pieces like Dagon stands right now on the pagan temple floors or will they be super glued back together and put up in the center of our whatever cultural 
uh, situation and consciousness and places that we frequent and things that revolve around all these frivolous pursuits? Will the nation, from our political leaders to policymakers uh, to minimum wage employees, will we soon forget how vulnerable and fragile we are? This, remi- this virus has reminded us of this. Will we soon forget that? Will families draw closer and continue to raise their own children for a change in this nation? Or will that change as well when the dust settles? Will our delusional faith in the economy, academy, scientism, technology, experts, and governments, will that all, which is all shaken for the moment, will that all rush back into the void when this subsides? These are questions to consider. By them, and by, that, by the application of this message, we can judge in part what this crisis will move us to reject, what this crisis will move us to embrace, and who we truly worship. Let me give you a heading for our message today. Israel's constitution modeled repentance unto three things. Their constitution modeled repentance unto absolute standards. Turning from something, admitting sin, turning from that sin, turning unto absolute standards. God's word. Number two, Israel's constitution modeled repentance unto social reformation. There was reformation in every area of their society as a result of this repentance. And number three, Israel's constitution modeled repentance unto eternal kingdom priorities. The habitation of God among them. The kingdom of God concerns. That's what Israel's constitution modeled for us. Major point number three. First of all, absolute standards. What are the absolute standards of righteousness, of truth, that Israel returned to and wrote down? In this covenant in writing, this firm document, this sealed constitutional commitment, well, they were the law of God. Notice in verse 938, again, because of this, we make a firm covenant in writing, a sealed document, and then it says, these are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Has anyone uh, seen a photograph or a copy of the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution? At the bottom of it, what you will find is the freehand signatures of, I don't know, 50 or 60 signatories. Who are these men who signed the Constitution? Well, they are representatives of the founding of our nation at the time. And so after that document was written, they stated their reputation and their commitment to abide by that document and to promote that document as a measuring stick, as a standard for the organization, for the order of our body politic, of our government proper. In the same sense here, we have a list of signatories on a document in Nehemiah 10. It's a long one, and I can't pronounce all the names. But you see it in 10.1. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor. We recognize his name. One of the chief representatives of the people. One of the deliverers that God has raised up to reorder this society according to the law of God. It goes further. The son of Hekeliah, Zedekiah, Seriah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, and so forth. A long list all the way through verse 27. These are signatories to the document. Who are they? 938 tells us. These are princes, Levites, and priests. Further revelation, 1028. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and then it goes forth to uh, label or to identify the peoples, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, Okay. So representatives from this group of people across the board of society were signatories on this document. Israel's constitution 
modeled repentance unto absolute standards, and they took those absolute standards to have universal application. This is a full-scale, society-wide repentance and revival. In other words, who should affix their name to the commitment to turn from sin, to seek God's forgiveness, and to admit that they have fallen short of the standard of righteousness? Everybody. Everybody in three categories. Kings and princes, civil magistrate, priests and prophets, religious leaders, fathers, and all your people, all the citizens. The universal application of the absolute standards communicate to us that there is no false dichotomy. There are no sacred versus secular contradictions in the constitution of the reformation of the state of Israel at this time. There is no church versus state antinomy. There is no pietistic reductionism wherein the church assumes she is only to care about the spiritual quality of someone's abstract profession, but not give too much advice or counsel or presume too much to speak into the public sphere, culture, government, or otherwise. No. Israel's constitution modeled repentance unto absolute standards with universal application. Kings and princes, the civil sphere. Priests and prophets, the church. Fathers and peoples, the family sphere. All of them would be held accountable to this reordering of things. Now, as we continue to read in 1028, we see the significance of this further explained. They join with their brothers, their nobles, and notice, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments. Prior to this, in verse 28, the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all, and I want you to notice this phrase, who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. Extremely important phrase. The people who are signing their names upon this solemn document, have separated themselves from the peoples unto, they have separated themselves to the law of God. What does that mean? Well, they have distinguished themselves from the cultural values, the past sins, the pagan deities, the compromising covenant relationships, the corrupting and defiling arrangements that have plagued them thus far. Nehemiah 9 and uh, verse 2. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Why separation from foreigners? Because the foreigners did not hold as God. Because the foreigners represented pagan values. They, it was, there was a certain form of ancient multiculturalism that the people were repenting of. What does multiculturalism teach? Well, all cultures are beautiful in their own way and hold equal value. Rubbish. Nonsense. All cultures will be judged by the absolute standard of God's law, which has universal application not only to every element of a particular society, but all elements of all societies. And by that standard, we are called, all men are called, to repent of their sin and turn to the Lord, to separate themselves from the foolish ways inherited from their fathers, 1 Peter, or from those uh, things, the passions of the flesh that once entrapped them, again, 1 Peter context, unto the Word of God. This is what repentance looks like. 
repentance unto absolute standards that have universal application to everyone. And it is this idea of separating from the familiar surroundings of your pagan, wicked, sinful culture unto the word and law of God. This was to be the primary distinguishing feature, fidelity to God's word among God's people. And you might say, oh, that sounds racist. If you said that, you would be speaking from an understanding that is shaped by a pagan culture. Indeed, identity politics skews the whole view of Scripture and might say separating from other cultures unto an identity that would preserve this people's heritage and the law of God might be a kind of in-group preference racist thing to do. Not so. In Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8, listen to the calling that this represented. See, I have taught you statutes and rules. As the Lord my God commanded me, Moses speaking, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of them, of it. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear of these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on Him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? You see, a nation is called, in this case, to be the envy of the world and of fulfillment of Genesis 12. Abraham was called to be a nation, not an, a specific identity, for self-congratulatory purposes, but a specific identity to be a light to all. America will not be a city on a hill, neither would Israel be a light to the nation, nations if she did not reorder her affairs, separate herself from the paganism of the sinful ways of the peoples so that she could hold forth a consistent testimony to the word of God. This is our calling today as well. We are called to separate ourselves from the diluting and compromise and the syncretistic influences, the mixture of all these other values and wickedness of culture, and to shine forth to the world a message of fidelity to the Word of God. And if we do so, this is the only true way to love all peoples. Because in this standard that we uphold by our solemn commitment to proclaim that Jesus Christ is authoritative and His Word never withers or fails and it's sufficient for the ordering of all life and thought as it is sufficient for the revealing of our own redemption. This is the hope and the only hope that shines as a beacon to all mankind. Let it be. Finally, absolute standards. We realize how serious this is by the nature of this ceremony, of this uh, situation that is taking place. Again, we return to chapter 10. These people, all again, all those important officials, representatives, wives, sons, daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, verse 29, they join with their brothers and their nobles and they enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. What does this mean? Well, the, the people are simply determined to take their relationship with the Lord with utmost seriousness. And we can learn at least this much. To enter into an oath by way of curse is to say as follows, may I be destroyed if I am unfaithful to my commitment, to my promise. Where had the people learned this kind of faithfulness to covenant? It had been modeled for them by God himself. 
in Genesis 15, which we will return to in our Genesis series at some point, the Lord himself makes a self-maledictory, that is, self-harm oath. There are animals that are split, God himself in theophonic form, that is, a representation in tangible sense of God passes through these split animals, and he ratifies a covenant with Abraham. And what is pictured there is God saying, may I be like these animals. I mean, it's, it, it's incredible to even say If it wasn't written in the word of God, it'd be blasphemous to even say. But God, in passing through those animals, says, May I be made like them if I should fall short of my covenant obligations. He swears by himself and to his own own hurt to satisfy the terms of the covenant. And as the connection of one pierce for our transgressions associated with that event eventually unveils through the course of history, we find that indeed for our sin, not only was God faithful to his covenant unto his own hurt, but he was faithful to the covenant unto his own hurt to satisfy the justice that our sin deserved. All this is pictured in this event. So the people realize how serious covenant relationship with God is. And so they enter into this solemn agreement, a curse and oath to walk in God's law. They say simply, they affirm that the judgments of God on a body politic, correspond to their fidelity to his law. That's what the people realize, they affirm, that's what's implied, that's what's proclaimed in this instance. They know that if they fall short of their duty, that they are deserving of God's judgments, and they're simply saying, preserve your glory by destroying us if we fall short in our commitment. They welcome his glory revealed in chastisement and affliction should they fail to uphold his glory by obedience. Do we have a commitment to God that serious today? Again, these people welcomed his glory revealed in chastisement and affliction should they fail to uphold his glory through obedience. I heard a frightening prayer, but I cannot disagree with it. From a pastor that I was listening to this week, he said, we should not pray that this affliction, that this pestilence, that this COVID-19, this coronavirus is lifted unless and until there is true repentance. That's a hard thing to pray. And you will not pray that unless you are similarly convicted to these people right here, that you care more about the glory of God than you do the best possible scenario to live your day-to-day life. How much do we care about the absolute standards? There is, this is repentance in writing. We proclaim, there's applications to proclaim of repentance modeled in this post-exile seriousness. Let us learn from them. Major point number two, Israel's constitution modeled repentance unto absolute standards. Number two, social reformation. The social order, that is the order of their society, was informed and structured by the application of the ceremonial law of God, which is particular to this time, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The civil law of God, and I suggest so should ours, so long as its abiding relevance is significant for us today, and the absolutes of the moral law. In other words, the people of God understand that they need to order all of their affairs around the absolutes of God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. As uh, the flagship of God's demands for righteousness. Now, there are a few examples under social reformation. First of all, covenant fidelity. Notice in verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. 
Again, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the lands or take their daughters for our sons. Now, what is represented in this commitment? Faithfulness to the covenant. It's a brief statement, but there's a lot represented here. The people recognize in this commitment that family and fu- the family and the future of a nation should not be compromised. It should never be negotiated for the promise of immediate peace or security. That is to say, the law of God is to take priority over compromising alliances. Intermarriage at the time usually represented seeking a balance of power. Seeking, uh, it was a bid for easing tensions. It was a gesture of goodwill so that neighboring countries that ordinarily might be at odds and at war with one another might have something in common. What is the principle of unity? Mixing in cultures and finding some common ground under, again, this rubric of multiculturalism? Is that the principle of unity? If the people had believed as much, they would sacrifice the future of their family, the faithfulness of the covenant, to the belief that intermarriage would be the key to maintaining peace, harmony, security, and relative stability in their area, in their land. Every time God's people did this, they were judged. Every time it proved an utter foolish failure. Uh, Solomon, King Solomon, why did he have so many wives? It wasn't just that he was you know, a, a crazy, lascivious type individual, but all these wives represented alliances with foreign uh, powers and foreign nations. And if you married the daughter of the nation next door, of the, uh, of the king of the nation next door, they're a lot less likely to go to war with you, or so the logic goes. But what happened? Solomon's heart was brought away. It was drawn away. And the idols of these other cultures and peoples began to be tempting. And the covenant faithfulness of the people was sacrificed in these kinds of compromises. Are we doing anything like that today? There are other ways where we make a bid for easing our tensions and achieving security. And do we sacrifice the vitality and the consistency and the livelihood and the spiritual uh, uh, understanding and principled foundation and worldview of our future generations in the process? You bet we do. Think of Samson and the, and the horrific consequences of his wayward affections. The end of Ezra, chapters 9 and 10, the end of Nehemiah, our books in question today, Nehemiah 13, both closing chapters of both books address this, covenant unfaithfulness. For the promise of temporary relief, they are compromising the law of God. What is the principle of unity? The principle of unity is to be the word of God without qualification, without equivocation, without compromise, without watering down, without mixing in, without syncretizing. Separate from the peoples to the law of God. This is not prima facie, you know, a prohibition against interracial marriage. That's not the point. What this is, is a prohibition against covenant compromise. A true marriage is, be, is called, Paul says, only between believers. Why? Because to join in union two people that are not unified under Jesus Christ is to introduce a new principle of unity into that marriage. Once a believer and unbeliever are found to be married, they are to stay together, but the unbelieving spouse is to be an example to pray that that marriage might be sanctified according to its covenant purposes. And just like in marriage, so it is with other covenant relationships. They are not to be compromised 
for an ulterior principle of unity. They are to uphold the word of God. Under social reformation, there's economic subordination, if you will. That is, putting material things under the spiritual. Verse 31, And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. What commandment is at issue here? Well, the fourth. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Material wealth and opportunity are secondary to the glory and worship of Yahweh. We demonstrate this when we bring our tithes, when the Lord moves us, we're convicted and we give to the kingdom of God. That's a good thing to do. It's a good application. Why? Because we are demonstrating that material wealth and opportunity are secondary to the purposes of God's glory and the growth of his kingdom work. Now, if we forego the glory of God, if we forego the worship and the assembly of the saints and we substitute it for a superior value, a superior preference like wealth and opportunity, then we have lifted up the economy as an idol. Our own financial well-being now rules us. It is Lord over Jesus Christ now. The people of God committed in this solemn document to refuse to violate the law of God for the sake of the economy. They refuse to violate the law of God for the sake of the economy. I hardly even need to draw application to our time, do we? we? I mean, we steal, as I mentioned last week, from future generations and future generations. Theft is committed ad nauseum to the tune of trillions of dollars by our government, breaking the law of God. But why? But why? So we're so afraid of economic ruin. These stimulus packages, these corona relief packages, we don't have the money for it. We're borrowing against the future labor of generations in the future. And in so doing, that's one example of breaking the law of God for the sake of our economy. It's the principled equivalent of buying and selling grain on the Sabbath day, not setting apart the day of the Lord and keeping it sacred and holy, but indeed betraying our idolatry by caring more about our financial well-being than our spiritual well-being, and even more important than that, than the glory and the honor of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Finally, there's, a cult, there's cultural mandate policies in verse 31b. It says, And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. That might seem like a funny footnote in all this. How could that possibly apply to us? The people make a commitment in this covenant repentance document. They put their repentance in writing. They say, we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, we don't have time to go there, but study this on your own time if you would. Second Chronicles 36, this is in your notes, 20 and 21. Right at the end of Second Chronicles 36, the book ends with entering into exile. And I want you to notice that the time frame of exile, 70 years, corresponds to how many Sabbath years that the land did not have. So God took his law so seriously, and he said every seventh year the land needs to rest. The people said, forget it. And God's patience endured with them so long until 70 years of Sabbath rest were stored up. And he said, fine, now you're going into exile, and the land will have her Sabbaths, if you will. And they did not return until 70 years were complete. I probably mentioned this in the past, it bears repeating. I was listening to a discussion I hope this fascinates and inspires you between a couple of scientific types. And they, were also, they also love the law of God. And they said, isn't it interesting 
that minerals that may well reinforce the gene code resequencing powers of the human body tend to sink into the soil over time. And if you give and if you allow the deep weed roots to go deep into the soil, they can actually draw up to the surface again some of these minerals that are absolutely essential for the health and vitality of the human body. All of a sudden, the Word of God starts to sound a little bit more sophisticated, does it not? All of a sudden, if you consider things like this, you begin to realize that you have such a strong uh, uh, polemic against the apostate and against the atheist who would deny this as some foolish goat herder lingo and tell them, no, you do not even understand to one iota how precise and powerful and sophisticated and complex and genius the Word of God is. In other words, we have only scratched the surface in our understanding, mostly because we don't really care about these laws anymore, the significance of basic order of things that God had instituted in the past. So, the people recognize the reason we were lost in Babylon for 70 years is because we didn't obey God's word. So now we will. We will forego the crops of the seventh year. In other words, we will let the land have its Sabbath. So these are dominion mandate policies, cultural mandate policies. People taking seriously God's case law on how to take good care of the earth. Uh, and uh, also, in regards to exaction of every debt, this is the jubilee charge. In other words, the people were called to let loan sunset on the jubilee year, debt forgiveness. Now, what significance might this have? Well, you can imagine, just think of this. What debt forgiveness incentivizes lenders, institutions, or individuals to do is to retain enough in resources that whatever they give in debt, they could give as a gift without whole-scale financial loss. Perhaps if we had paid a little bit more attention to the principles of fiscal responsibility found in the Word of God, we wouldn't have 10 million jobless claims after two months of partial suspension of our economy. We are fools. We are a debt-based society. The scriptures tell us in the principles of his Proverbs that to be in debt is to be a slave to the lender. But we welcome slavery. We welcome our chains. We kiss our chains. We paint them gold. We borrow more. We extend our standard of living to that which we can afford to borrow. And this all indicates, generally speaking, a disregard for the principles and the social order that God has instituted in his scriptures that included at this time an exaction or a sunset on debt. What if our government had that policy? Well, I'll tell you, there wouldn't be the financial hurt that we're incurring right now. So don't be so quick to dismiss the law of God. You do so to your own destruction. Israel con- so Israel's constitution models repentance for us. I mean, it's practical. It's philosophical. It's practical. It spans the gamut. Absolute standards, social reformation, and finally this morning, eternal kingdom priorities. Israel's constitution models repentance unto eternal kingdom priorities. The remainder of chapter 10, which we won't cover most of, we'll just give a summary from the beginning here, goes into the worship order of the day, verse 32. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. That's the key phrase there, service of the house of our God. That principle can be applied in New Testament application. 
God's purposes, his dwelling with his people, the presence of the Lord, and his purposes in growing his kingdom through his church yet stands today. It's taken different form in the fulfillment and post-incarnation realities. Nevertheless, we have a lot to learn here. Verse 33, for the showbread and the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings, and note this phrase, to make atonement for Israel. What is recognized here is an eternal kingdom priority. That is the priority of atonement. At this time, Israel's constitution modeled repentance unto prioritizing atonement. Provisions were directed towards spiritual concerns. This corresponds a new covenant uh, revelation to the fulfillment and substance of these types and shadows. You could say the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ must be priority for a nation to be properly ordered. You talk about an essential service. That is an essential service. So it grieves me and breaks my heart that to some degree, through circumstances providential and otherwise, we shall see as the days move forward, it grieves me and breaks my heart that in any way the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ might be suppressed as a result of this pestilence, of this pandemic that is upon us. Let us realize, saints, members of the household of God, let us realize, brothers and sisters, that true kingdom priorities recognize the importance of the atonement of Jesus Christ and the gospel must go forward. What does the word of God teach us? What should we really fear? That which would cause us to go into a coughing fit, perhaps a two-week sickness, that most will recover from, perhaps in worst case scenario, we die from acute respiratory failure. Should we fear that? Or should we fear that which can cast both body and soul into hell forever? And what is the preventative cure? What is the vaccination for the ailment that troubles the soul? Fact. In fact, what is the cure for the pandemic of sin? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let the church with everything that she does to aid in this circumstance, providing help in material ways, that's all right and good, but let her realize that more important than all of this is the cure that leads unto eternal life. And may the gospel of Jesus Christ be proclaimed all the louder, all the more emphatically, all the more persistently, all the more boldly at this time, because people are dying without Jesus on ventilators, sedated on their hospital beds. They can be perfectly whole when they pass from this veil of tears. If they realize their sins, again, they admit their sin, seek God's forgiveness, they turn from sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ to save them. It's an eternal kingdom priority. Also the priority of worship, the glory of God. Do you believe it is in our national interest? If you don't, you'll join the waste bin of judged nations throughout the course of history. Oh, the glory of God isn't a priority concern in my national interest, Nebuchadnezzar says. Okay, go ahead and eat grass. Oh, the glory of God isn't a priority concern in my life, Belshazzar says. All right, your kingdom is destroyed in an hour. The glory of God isn't my priority concern, says Caesar, the French Empire, you know, the uh, Spanish Empire, Rome, Greece, Persia, all these ancient empires, Assyria, Chaldeans, Babylon, America. The glory of God isn't your priority concern. It isn't in your national interest, America. You will die like all the others. I mean, we have more historical precedent than any empire that went before us to realize the consequences of 
treading on the glory of the Lord. Now, I have an apology to make. A few weeks ago, I sent out a text to everyone. I said, let's heed the national call to prayer tomorrow and pray. National call to prayer is great. But when I read the language of that call to prayer issued by our government, its current administration, I saw in the language that extended that call to prayer to all our, quote, faith communities. Rubbish. There is no other God but the Almighty Yahweh who's the, and who sent the Savior, and the only one, the only hope, the only place where we can cry Hosanna and get an answer is Jesus Christ. And if you issue a call to prayer and invite everybody to call upon their gods, what are you? You're the prophets of Baal, up on the top of Mount Carmel. The only, and what did Elijah say? Oh, maybe he's on the toilet. Maybe he's in the bathroom. That was the attitude of the prophet of God towards all the other, quote, faith communities in Israel at the time. You want to call on Baal? Yeah, he's probably, if he exists, he's on the toilet. That's what Elijah said. This is the kind of attitude that the church must have against the false idols of our day. Not this tolerance and inclusion and ecumenism that violates the exclusivity and the beauty and the glory and the power of God in our confessions. No, there is no repentance unless we turn to the only God there is. So let us return to him. And this is what the people were doing. And they carefully laid out their plans by sealed document. They put their repentance in writing. And they, said, and they said, we are going to do all of this in the remainder of chapter 10 in order to recognize that the glory of God and the worship of the same is in our national interest. And we avoid it to our own peril. Our worship text is Malachi 1, 11 through 14. And there the Lord rejects the profane worship of the peoples. He says, I don't want your worship. Why? Because they're bringing lame and sacrifices. As Mark prayed this morning, very apt prayer. Now, what's the modern equivalent of that? Well, the Lord has seen fit in his providence to some degree to shut down worship in this nation. Could it be because a lot of it is just profane? That we've compromised the sacrifices of the true proclamation of the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. We've mixed it with all kind of distracting hooks and licks and tricks and, th- and uh, ideas of the enemy and pagan worldviews and ideas and values that perish with the using and are nothing more than just the you know, philosophical fad of the hour. Yeah, of course we have. And perhaps what God is doing in part is saying to us in this moment, I reject your profane worship. You know what I pray? I pray after the dust settles that all profane worship would, would, would not return. Would not return to p- places of, and, and pulpits and prominent uh, broadcast situations in this land. We don't need it. In fact, it comes at our own peril. Better to have a minority. Better to have a Gideon's 300 and destroy the Midianites with God's power than to summon everybody and compromise the integrity of your army and go against, uh, with your humanistic plan, the forces of the wicked one and be destroyed. Why? Because you haven't recognized that the glory of God and the priority of the worship of Him alone is the only thing in which to invest our hope. As we bring this message to a close, we're again... The aim is to apply repentance modeled in post-exile, this post-exile situation by considering the repentance in writing. Israel's constitution modeling repentance onto absolute standards, social reformation, and eternal kingdom priorities. God is so gracious and faithful. He is so kind. I would not be surprised if he gives us a second chance that we do not deserve. His steadfast love endures forever. 
even to our generation. I want you to notice this merciful hope, this verse of hope in 927 back in Nehemiah. In the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors. Interesting word. Interesting translation. Who saved them from the hand of their enemies. If you go to check a, a lexicon, you will find that the word is sometimes translated deliverers. These were the judges. These were the Joshua tri- types, the Ezra's, the Moseses, the Nehemiah's that God raised up. They were a foreshadowing of a Savior to come, a deliverer to come. Were they not? Who would that be? Jesus Christ. I'm here to announce to you 2,000 plus years after it happened that God has given us a Savior who has saved us from the hand of our enemies. He has saved us from the hand of sin itself, death, Satan, and the grave. He has saved us unto eternal life. And I don't have to be that Savior. No other mere man is that Savior. They are idols and they are blasphemers if they stand in the place of that one. Our goal as proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to point you to Him. The Savior has come. Now this, many recognize as Palm Sunday, traditionally, whatever. I'm not concerned about the church calendar, but so long as our minds are on what Palm Sunday is, think of that cry from the throats of those who welcome Jesus at the triumphal entry. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That term, Hosanna, in the Hebrew means save now or save us. That was one point in history where that cry was directed to the only one who had the power to answer that plea, ultimately speaking. Save us, save now. God did it through servants of old, in partial ways in the past, but not unto eternal life. But God would do it once and for all through His Son, Jesus Christ, the one deliver and Savior unto repentance and repair and apostate nation and unto even more redemption of the individual places their faith in His work on Calvary unto eternal salvation. Right now, if you scroll, just go to Drudge Report and count the headlines that Christ save us. You will find no exaggeration, 50, 60, or 70 where somewhere in the course of that news story, you'll hear the cry, save now, save us. Who are these cries for salvation being lifted to? Are they being lifted to Donald Trump, our president, Congress and their ability to give us a stimulus package? Oh, Trump, save us. Oh, Congress, save us. Oh, medical technology, save us. Oh, Dr. Fauci, in your infinite, inscrutable wisdom, what should we do? Oh, Andrew Cuomo, bless your leadership in New York. Oh, Tim Walls, thank you for the reassuring, uh, you know, press conference that makes me feel better about the future state of Minnesota. Save us masks. Save us ventilator. Save us American ingenuity. Save us political uh, actors. Save us scientists. Save us academics, save us, save us. Our cries are directed to idols. All of these parts and pieces might fit in somewhere, but only in a way that glorifies God when they recognize ultimately there's only one person who deserves that cry and who can answer substantially, and that's Jesus Christ. In this time of crisis, let us lift up our voice, save now, Save us to him alone. Matthew 21, 8 through 11. Don't join join your voices with the cries from culture. Rather, cry out with those who greeted Jesus upon his triumphal entry. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us, save now in the highest. 
And so, all in the hearing of this message, I point you to the Savior. I point you away from the false saviors. And I encourage you to direct your hosannas to Him alone. Search your heart. Have your hosannas been placed anywhere else? Have they been directed anywhere else? I encourage you, repent. What is repentance? Admitting that that is sin. Seeking God's forgiveness. Turning from that sin. And the turning is as easily as directing your heart heavenward unto Christ. And say, Hosanna is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us. Save now. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Let us close in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for help and hope that comes through your word. We thank you for help and hope that comes from Christ our Lord. We thank you that he saves to the uttermost body and soul. I lift my eyes up to psalmist Christ. From whence does my help come from? And his answer came years later when the fulfillment of the prophecies he placed hope and faith in finally came true. And on that lowly donkey, our Savior rode in to the city of God, to the city of David, welcomed by the cries of Hosanna. It is him we exalt in our prayers, in our praise, in our pleading, in our worship today. It is him we turn our attention, Lord. We pray that as we do so, that others might ask for the reason of the hope within, and we might be able to point them to Jesus Christ as well. Lord, I pray that you would help us to put our repentance in writing if necessary. Perhaps, Lord, you would move in this land to organize a group of evangelical leaders. I don't know, but they could draft a document, Lord Jesus, of all that we should repent of, something that ministers, people, priests and prophets, or their equivalent, principled equivalent, and leaders, princes and kings, their principled equivalent, could put their name to, to demonstrate that we are taking this seriously. Whatever you choose, Lord, may we seek for ways to put real repentance in action, to acknowledge your absolute standards, to be willing to embrace the whole scale reform your word demands, and to place at the top, at the very top, eternal kingdom priorities, chief among them, atonement, salvation in Jesus Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen.